Hello, and welcome to Fatal Films, a podcast surrounding the women of mystery. Each episode will look at a movie or TV show written, directed, or made famous by a female-identifying artist. We're your hosts, Laura Celeste and Lacey Cannon-Gonzalez. Stay tuned. Welcome back. In this episode, we look at the 1977 Japanese movie, House, directed by Nobuhiko Obayashi, written by Chiho Katsura, starring Kimiko Igama, Miki Jimbo, Kumiko Oba, Mieko Sato, Masayo Miyako, Eriko Tanaka, and Yoko Minamita. To get us started, here is a synopsis. A schoolgirl travels with her six classmates to her ailing aunt's country home, where they come face-to-face with supernatural events as the girls are one-by-one devoured by the home. We do want to caution you that this episode is full of spoilers. We have an in-depth discussion on the plot, so if you care about that, go watch the movie and come back. We'll be waiting. Trigger warnings for this episode are disturbing images, blood, gore, and violence. It's kind of in the same vein of Evil Dead, so if you're comfortable with that, you should be good with this movie. It's very, um, silly gore? Yeah. (laughs) We should invent a new category. There's cottage core, there's night core, now there's silly gore core. <laughs> There's probably a lot of people that would really get on board with that. Silly gore core. I feel like we have just termed a new or coined a new term. Silly gore core. That's that has potential for merchandise. Yes. Start your Pinterest boards now. <laughs> Silly gore core. <laughs> Well, hello, everybody. We are back after a long hiatus with all kinds of crazy family stuff and health issues and moving countries and this, that, and another. How are you, Lacey? I am well. We are coming to you from two different continents. Yes. um, I have moved to Ireland to work on my master's degree in film history, theory, and practice. And you're still back in Texas. And I am here for the food. Ah, I identify with Mac so much. You know what? That was a tie-in and I didn't even mean it. I was just quoting Rizzo from Muppet Christmas Carol. Yes. But also, yes. Very much Mac. No, she has this one line that I wrote down. Uh, Chocolate, candy, bread, love, and dreams. And I identify with that. You need to make one of those shirts where they, like, how they have the characters of friends or something where it says, like, Monica, Phoebe, Ross, Rachel, or whatever. Yeah. That's what, you need to make that kind of shirt, with, <laughs> but with those things. So what was it? Chocolate, bread. Chocolate, candy, bread, love, and dreams. That's it. This might That's be added to our point. merchandise page soon, guys, if you want one. I want to write that down. Chocolate. Wow, I've lost the ability to sell. Candy, bread, love, and dreams. Yep. Do we have a merch store? I started one, but then I got busy with moving preparations, so there's nothing in it yet, but I'm still designing some shirts to go in it. We have a store. But there's nothing there. Yes. Um, yes, Queen, give us nothing. <laughs> and since we are in spooky movie month or spooktober or scary movie month or 31 days of Halloween, yeah, whatever you um, call this wonderful time of year, I am doing a series for our patrons on all the movies that I'm watching. I'm watching a horror movie every day, and so far there are two of those up. So if you're interested in sponsoring us on Patreon, that is one of your bonus episodes that you will be getting. We're both doing that, actually. So if you want my films that I've been watching, Laura, just tell me. Yes. Because I have watched new horror films, and I have discovered some that I really, really like. Ooh, cool. Okay, well, I'll be excited to hear about them when you send me your episode. So today, we are talking about the movie House. This is a movie that... I came to because several of my movie buff friends um, had talked about it and said that it was great. And so when we started our movie nights, um, when the pandemic was going on and we couldn't see each other, we were just online. I think this was the first one that we watched because I'd been wanting to show it to you guys for a long time. This was one of those, it started and I thought this was going to be a Lara choice. And it was a Lara choice. And if you don't know what a Lara choice is, it is just the most off the wall thing you can imagine. And but that doesn't mean it's good, good, going to be good or bad. It could go either way. Yeah. So it was a Lara choice, but I thought it was gonna be a Lara choice that it's like, okay, I'm going to suffer through this. (laughs) And then at the end, make fun of her. But it ended up being one of those that caught me by complete surprise that was just super charming and engaging 
and weird and fun and just makes you laugh out loud at the ridiculous ridiculousness that you're watching. Every time I've seen this movie with a group of people, it's always been a huge success because it's just so weird and the colors are so bright and it's just fun. Yeah, people always walk away from it going, that was a lot of fun. Even if they don't ever want to watch it again, they always enjoy the experience. Yeah. But did you know that this movie was supposed to be a Jaws-type movie? Like, the studio that made it, they saw how big of a hit Jaws was, and they were like, we need to do that. And this is what they did. Yeah, so this film was made by Toho Films in Japan. And they are best known for the Godzilla franchise, if you didn't know that. And they saw... Spielberg's and Universal Pictures' success with Jaws, and they're like, we want to do that. Any hoogle. They wanted to cash in on the success of Jaws and make their own type of Jaws. <laughs> so the Toho Films approached a filmmaker whose name is Nobuhiko Obayashi, and they wanted him to come up with a concept. So they want, and they wanted him to develop the project. So, and Obayashi, he um, was an art school graduate. He belonged to an experimental film group. He really enjoyed avant-garde techniques. And he actually was primarily a commercial director. He made, I, I watched some of them on YouTube and they are just, they, they're as out there as the film is. It's interesting because there is a special feature with the Criterion disc or on the Criterion channel where there's a filmmaker talking about him. And they said a lot of times nowadays in Hollywood, they'll get commercial directors to uh, make horror movies because they make them look very slick and mm. like commercials are. But they got a commercial director and he purposely made the movie not look slick like he wanted the special effects to look like something that a child might envision versus like an actual like whatever it was that he was trying to do yeah and that's what I found really interesting too was with the initial approach from Toho Film he immediately went to his 10 year old daughter Chigumi and was like if daddy were to make a Japanese film what would it what would be an interesting story and essentially she drew out pictures and of these ideas she had and he ended up using most of them in the film so much so that she was given a um conceptual credit yeah she has a story credit um for it which is amazing yeah. not only is this movie female-led it's also female created but by a very young girl <laughs> i thought it was a really sweet addition to the story that here is this this man that's given this platform and this potential to do this film or to create this film and he goes to his daughter I thought that was really, really sweet. There's a quote yeah, from so him that says, adults only think about things they can understand and everything stays on that boring human level, while children can come up with things that can't be explained. That's so cool. Yeah, so he goes to his daughter, she gives him these concepts, and he presents her ideas to the screenwriter who will become the screenwriter, uh, Chiho Katsura, who goes and writes the screenplay based on the ideas given by Obiashi and his daughter. So the film production company greenlights the script, uh, but they hit a roadblock because none of the directors with the studio want to touch this thing. And Obayashi wants to direct, but they won't let him because he's not on staff at the production company. So what does he do? What every rational person, or what every rational person would do. He starts promoting the film. Uh, he has business cards made. He has a novelization of the script created. He does a radio play, a manga, even releases a soundtrack. And he starts casting the film with models he had worked with on his commercial. And this goes on for about two years. And there is huge buzz about House before it even begins production. So finally, Toho Films is like, fine. You can direct. And they hire him. They let him be the director. And then it was filmed over the course of two months. And it's almost a, a cast of completely unknown amateur actors that he had utilized in his commercials. Yeah, sometimes you can tell that. But overall, I mean, I think it works fine because of the tone of the movie. 
and just how out there everything is. That if the acting had been like too realistic, I think that would have, it wouldn't have fit. Yeah, I think having, not necessarily untrained actors because I don't know their background, but having people that hadn't done a lot of work in the film kind of lended to the feel. Because it, it, we've talked about it, it's this childlike kind of whimsy, which is so funny with, with where the film ends up. But there is like this very childlike quality to it. And the characters are students. They're supposed to be children. And so there is kind of just this childlike-esque newbie feel to it. And so I think having amateur actors lended to that. Yeah. But um, he really utilized his experimental background. <laughs> yeah. To, and a lot, like you said, it was a very special effects heavy. And it was really in stark contrast to the trends of filmmaking in the U.S. and Japan at the time. Because that was heavily based in realism. That's what people wanted to see. And Obayashi was like, no, 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 no. We are doing the exact opposite. He wanted to give audiences something different, a cinematic reality of make-believe. And like you said, he wanted to make special effects that a child would make. And this movie was not well-received by the critics, but it was a commercial success. People loved it. And it took a while for it to come over to the U.S., but when it finally a did, it was same thing. People, It was acquired by Janus Films, which is part of the Criterion um, company. People were like, you have to start showing this. So they did screenings and then ultimately, you know, released it. Uh, for home video and yeah like I said every time I've seen this with a group of people it's always been a huge success yeah it it completely won over audiences but Japanese critics when it was released in 1977 panned it and there were actually a lot of Japanese filmmakers that were very threatened by the success of this movie because they thought it would do permanent damage to the film industry in Japan and it took 32 years before it got an official U.S. release date. Wow. But then, like you said, the same thing happened in the U.S. that happened in Japan. People were just enamored by this weird charm of this movie. And then, yeah, in 2010, it was inducted into the Criterion Collection. But still, I looked at some of the reviews in the U.S. and people still were like, oh, there's not much to commend about the story, but it has charm. And I'm like, how can you not give this a good review? I mean, what what happened? How is your heart stone? I think that that's the thing, too. I think sometimes people get caught up in the whatever of filmmaking or the whatever of art that makes people kind of cut off from the imagination of it. And it's like, okay, well, it has to be this good art is this thing. So, and anything that doesn't fit in those confines is not good. Yeah. And it's like this film challenges that a lot. (laughs) Yeah. And I think it does take a special person not even a special person, but I think it takes a person that's connected with that child, that inner child that we all have, that that whimsy and playfulness to get it. Because I don't know if, because I mean, I'm thinking of a few people in my life. I don't know if they get it. And that's okay. You don't have to get it. You don't have to like it. It's completely subjective and up to you. But I do think there's something kind of magical about it that people connect with. Are you ready to jump into it? Let's just dive on in. Let's just do a big old cannonball right into just like the Melody pool house. into the piano. <laughs> just like Max Head into the well. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> Spoiler. So this movie starts off with this kind of creepy photo shoot that foreshadows a lot of things, but also kind of feels out of place. Like I forget that this is where the movie starts every time. Yeah, it's again, it, it's like it completely is the director's style. It's letting you know right off the bat that it's, it's going to have this dreamy quality to it. And the first part of this movie really is. It's very happy-go-lucky and idyllic. And, but it starts off with kind of this creepy green cast photo shoot that these girls are doing with like head wraps and candles and things. Fantasy is the photographer and she's taking a picture of Gorgeous. And she tells her that she looks like a witch in an old movie. And we find out that it's coming up close to summer vacation. And Gorgeous is going to be staying in a villa with her dad, who is a um, composer for composer. movies. And there's, uh, she's so jealous because her dad is rich and 
Gorgeous comes home and finds her dad's home a day early, but there's a surprise. He's brought a new mommy with him. And Yeah, as one of the first things he says to her is, now you don't have to mend my shirts anymore. Yeah. He also has this line where he says, she's good at cooking and a lot of other things, surprisingly. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Yeah. <laughs> surprisingly. <laughs> uh, but like, this woman enters like she's an angel from heaven. Yeah. She's in this flowing white dress with this white scarf and the wind is blowing it back. And she's just, yeah, that's what I wrote, a vision or an angel. So it invokes the same thing. Yeah. Well, it's like when you go back and look at some of his commercials, it kind of has that feel. It has kind of a commercial feel. Like I'm waiting for her to be like, here, buy this perfume. Oh, yeah. Available in fine department stores. And it's been eight years since Gorgeous's mom has passed away and her dad's like, it's time that we had a family now. Time for a new mommy. Yeah. And Gorgeous does not take this well. She runs off and there's this, I love the way he incorporates like a still shot and then the movement will start up again. Or like the shot coming up in her bedroom, it's, you see it and... She's in her school uniform and then it kind of close up on something and then pulls back and it's like a completely different day. She's in a different outfit or time has passed. It's just a really interesting way of doing things, but it's also kind of disorienting. So you don't know like how much time has passed. Is it later in the afternoon? Is it a week later? I don't know. Yeah. And so she's in there like reminiscing about her mother hating on her dad because she's like xing out his face and pictures and stuff like that and she's like thinking about all these memories and that causes her to wonder about her her aunt her her mom's sister who she hasn't seen in a long time yeah later on she says it's been 10 years she hasn't seen her since her grandmother's funeral and that was the only time she met her aunt she's thinking about her we go back to school and we meet all of her friends they're all kind of lined up on a bench and they have their personality things like Prof has her glasses on and is reading a book, and Melody has a guitar, and Max eating something. No, well, that's I, I love this intro shot. And they do introductions of the group, I think they do it twice, because they do it a little bit later on. Because right now, Gorgeous isn't with them, it's just fantasy. So fantasy and all these girls are supposed to go to the summer camp, and um, Mr. Togo is taking them. And Mr. Togo is brought up initially when Gorgeous and Fantasy are having their little photo shoot and talking about the summer because that's where Fantasy's going and Fantasy is in love with Mr. Togo. So they're kind of waiting for him to come pick them up is what it seems like. And yeah, so they have like this pan shot where they go down the line. And so it's Max who's, I think they try to, they try to say like, she's the, like the fat one. Yeah. They say a few times about don't eat so much Mac or you'll get fat or something, but she's not fat. Or you'll get fatter. Yeah. No, she's, she's, she's so thin, but she is always eating or thinking about food like yes. that that's her personality in this group and then like you said there's prof which, which is short for professor she's the brainy one because she's wearing glasses duh that's literally what I wrote and then I thought it was funny because I didn't put it together but so fantasy is always kind of dreaming and has her head in the clouds and she's always like fantasizing about Mr. Togo and things like that so that like makes sense for her name I didn't get that until I was like going back and looking at things then there's Melody who always has an instrument or wants to like play an instrument or play music so she's she's the musician then there's Kung Fu, who is my personal queen. She is the group's sporty spice. Enough said. And then there is Sweet, self-explanatory. She, she, she's nice. Which, it could have made sense for Mac to be named, like, Sweets, because she eats sweets, but, you know. Was it, was it Mac for, like, mac and cheese, or, like, what? <laughs> I guess Mac, because, like, she's big. Like a Big Mac? Maybe. I maybe. Oh. Well, because I just find that so funny because they always try to pass her off. Do you, have you ever heard the term duff? Isn't that, was that movie made? Designated ugly fat friend. Yeah. And that kind of feels like what they're trying to, that kind of feels like what the screenwriter or the director, that feels like the role she's kind of been cast in, but she's 
clearly not that. She looks the same like the other girls. Yeah. So they find out from Mr. Togo that they can't go to the camp that they were supposed to go to because his sister's going to have a baby. So Gorgeous is like, hey, you should all come to my aunt's house with me. She has not asked her aunt yet. She doesn't even know if she can go to her aunt's house. But she definitely is inviting everybody, including Mr. Togo, to go stay at her aunt's house for the summer. I kind of felt like that's something I would have done when I was a kid. Like, then, like, oh, yeah, all of you can come over. It's going to be totally fine. And you'd be like, Lacey, did you ask mom? <laughs> like, no. Why would I do that? It's fine. <laughs> so she does go home and write a letter to her aunt and is like, hey, this is how it came about that I invited all my friends. So please, can we come? And while she's doing this, this beautiful cat jumps into the window and she's like, I guess I have a cat now. And Is it Blanche? Yeah. Blanche. Blanche. Oh, Blanche. Blanche. But you are Blanche. You are. And she keeps waiting for the letter and the letter doesn't come. There's, I wrote, kitty, baby, no letter yet. But now there's a cat with a letter. Because <laughs> she's just like walking and she's just like, oh, coochie-coo baby in the stroller. Now I'm going to school. And then the next shot is her like running up to the mailbox and Blanche is sitting on top of it. And there's a letter sticking out of it. And her aunt is like, yes, definitely all of y'all come. Blanche is like, we just got a letter. We just got a letter. Got a letter. We just got a letter. It's Wonder from my it's aunt. From. <laughs> um, and then we get this music video uh, where there's a happy shoemaker that's kind of. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the little girl with the shoemaker, that's Obayashi's daughter. Oh, okay. That's our Queen Jigumi. That this is the girl that is responsible for this incredible film. But yeah, the shoemaker and yeah, the little girl is sitting there and they're just kind of like swaying back and forth, making some shoes, and Mr. Togo's getting ready to leave the house and he like Blanche trips him down the stairs and he gets stuck in a bucket and the bucket runs away with him and he almost gets hit by a car and no I heard this described as what would happen if Obayashi did Sesame Street because <laughs> the stop motion Togo in a bucket is freaking hysterical but yeah like, that does give me Sesame Street vibes and little kids playing drums on the bucket that's still stuck on his butt and he's got to go to the hospital so he can't take the train with them and, oh no and there's this just super happy music playing and they get to the train station and gorgeous isn't there and they're like where is she and so finally they decide they're gonna go get on the train and hopefully she's there and she's standing on the platform and yeah, the, like, wind blows her hair and she looks gorgeous. And she Good. couldn't find Blanche. But guess what? Blanche is on the train waiting for her. Blanche is like, I'm already in my seat. I'm ready to go. Where's my complimentary glass of champagne? Yeah. They start talking about how any old cat can open a door, but only a witch's cat can close a door. Duh. Yeah. And this movie's so cool because of how it mixes, like, regular animation, stop motion animation, um, green screen effects, uh, still photos. So we get an animation of the train, but it's a little kid, like, looking at a book about a train and then it like morphs into their train journey and they ask about her aunt and we get a silent movie showing the yeah. aunt's life and that's so cool because we're learning about the aunt the same way the girls are so it's like they're watching the black and white movie reel with us because they keep commenting on it there's one point where, like, the film catches on fire and they go, it's a kiss of fire, which I thought was a nice touch. There's also, it's a really quick shot, but it's of the bombs going off. And so I don't know exactly how that plays into it, but I know that it's like a deeper part of the story. It is, and I can go into it now or I can save it. Okay, we'll touch on it after. We learn the aunt's story. She was in love with a man who was going to be a doctor, uh, but he gets called away to war and he tells her, or she says she'll wait for him mm -hmm. always, basically, but he never comes back. And then her mom gets married and goes away, and it's just the aunt living at the house by herself. Waiting and, for yes, someone her, who's never going to show up. 
waiting for her lost love. This house is like in the middle of nowhere because they take a train, then they take a bus, then they get off a bus stop. That's nowhere. So they have a nice walk through the woods and they cross a bridge. And this is our second introduction because they stop and you get a close up on each girl's face and their character name. So if you weren't sure who everybody was before, you definitely know now. Now you know. Yes. And I love it too, because it feels very like teen vogue of it, which just makes it feel more youthful. And so they're walking through the woods and they stop at this watermelon stand that kind of looks like it's abandoned. And of course, Max like watermelons. And hell yeah. She takes a big one off the top stack and there's this guy who has his head hidden behind there and he tells him which way to the house and he says, we haven't had a visitor in a long time after they leave. Yeah, but they're going to bring this watermelon to her aunt like as a thank you gift. Yeah. Like, thank you for letting us stay at your house. Here's a big ass watermelon. Mm -hmm. I mean... I wouldn't be mad if someone came to stay with me and brought me a giant watermelon. No, I don't know how far they have to lug it though, because they still yeah, look it's like... like if Mac has to schlep that thing all the way up to Auntie's house, you know she's got some muscles. That's a, that's some muscles. Yeah, and what a house it is too. Um, yes, and when not get... creepy at all. Yeah, <laughs> when they get there. The doors won't open, nobody answers, so they don't know what to do. And all of a sudden, it opens just a crack, and Blanche goes in. And then there's Auntie in a wheelchair with Blanche in her lap. And that's when we get... everything is fine. Yeah, everything is fine. It's not creepy at all. We get a a little bit more backstory, and Mac offers the watermelon as a thank you present. And we get inside, and the house is all like dusty and there's cobwebs everywhere and auntie is like chandelier light the way for them and turns on the light and immediately some crystals fall off and one impales a salamander and then kung fu leaps in the air and knocks one away so that it doesn't impale i think it's sweet yeah and there's pictures of a white cat all over the place and they're like there's so many pictures of a cat i'm like same yeah everyone's like admiring the cat pictures that looks surprisingly a lot like blanche but that's fine yeah and they get a tour of the house and they see the room where gorgeous's grandfather um he was a doctor and he would do his examinations and there's a skeleton in there that scares everybody and they find they see the piano and Melody's so excited. Oh no, I was gonna talk about the skeleton because I completely forgot about it. Oh <laughs> oh yeah. So they get a tour of the house, they fix dinner. Auntie is not there because she's feeling bad. And so they're like, but she needs food. And they're like, but let her rest. And she had said something about how the light hurts her eyes, and when they asked her what happened to her legs, which I feel like <laughs> They were just like, what happened to your legs? And she's like, don't worry about it. (laughs) She's like, okay. She had told Max that the refrigerator was out of order. So they tie up the watermelon and go stick it in the well so it will chill. And actually pretty resourceful thinking. Yeah. They called it nature's refrigerator. And Mac goes out to get the watermelon because, of course, Mac has to eat because she's always starving. Um. She has to be in charge of the food. Yep. And she doesn't come back. So, yeah. So Fantasy goes out to get the watermelon. And she pulls it up and she's like looking at the sunset and it's so beautiful. And then she looks at the watermelon and it's not a watermelon. It's Mac's head. And then Mac's head. head. Yeah, just her head. And then the head like leaps up into the air and does a flip. And Fantasy's trying to run away, and then it bites her on the butt, and she screams, and... Do you remember when you were a kid, and they had those sing-along videos? It was like, follow the bouncing ball. Uh Uh-huh. That's what the head reminded me of. (laughs) That's, That's good. Follow the bouncing head. But Auntie comes out, and stands up out of her wheelchair. They're like, when could you stand? Yeah. And she's like, I'm feeling so much better now. But Fantasy's like, the watermelon's ahead. And then they pull it up. 
And it's a very tense moment where, because the, the rope, they just keep pulling and pulling and pulling. And they're all like lined up behind each other, I guess, for moral support. And then they pull it up and it's just a watermelon. And they're all just like, fantasy, you're making, you're just having hallucinations again. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they tell her that so many times. Oh, you're just seeing things again. The amount of gaslighting fantasy endures. <laughs> I know. Poor thing. And so they're all eating the watermelon and Auntie kind of winks at fantasy and then an eyeball like pops out of her mouth. That literally, just thinking about that makes me want to gag. It's so gross. Yeah. And it happens so twice. And of course, fantasy's freaked out about this, as you would be. I don't know why. It's a perfectly normal thing to have this old lady open her mouth and there's an eyeball in there. Yep. And so they all like separate at this point and Sweet is cleaning the house. So sweet. Gorgeous is going to take a bath and Kung Fu is chopping wood. The other ones are all doing dishes and Auntie <laughs> comes in and she's dancing. Uh, no wheelchair needed now. Yeah, she's feeling a lot better. Yeah. And then she like dances into the refrigerator and Fantasy sees that, and they're like, oh, you're just yeah. seeing things again, Fantasy. Like, no one else sees what's happening, but Auntie lets Fantasy see it. So everyone thinks she's going out of her mind. Yeah. And then we see Auntie having a great time. She's dancing around, her and the skeleton do a little jig. Uh, Good she, old times. She eats a hand and like half of a goldfish and then throws it back in the bowl and it comes to life. And uh, Which I found really funny because this was the studio's answer to Jaws. Oh, yeah. <laughs> she like eats a goldfish. I don't know why I thought that was funny. And while this is going on, um, the wood starts attacking Kung Fu, but she fights it off. And somehow ends up in her underwear. I don't know. Yeah, she literally jumps out. I can't remember. Was she wearing a skirt or pants? I a can't skirt. remember. But she literally jumps out of her skirt because this wood's attacking her. And then she's just in her underwear. And so, and that's what she's in for the rest of the movie is just her underwear. And after she defeats the wood, she says something along the lines of, that was weird. And then nothing else yeah, about odd. it. Um Sweet goes to get the bedding. It attacks her. Well, first there's a doll that is saying her name. Yeah, that's that's fine. Yeah, and... No, this thing gives a new meaning to, like, pillow fight. Oh, yeah, because basically the bedding, like, eats her, and all that's left is her underwear and her clothes and a naked doll. And so when they discover it, they're just like, well, where did she go? And why did she strip? Yeah, why is she naked? <laughs> Um, and while Gorgeous is in the bath, this, like, bunch of black hair, like, creeps over her shoulder. Well, and it's like her hair gets a mind of its own. It's really gross. It really disturbed me. And Melody's playing the piano, and the skeleton is dancing in the background behind her. Gorgeous finds this vanity in an upstairs room, and while she's putting on lipstick, her reflection, like, starts doing something different, and then it grows, like, vampire fangs, and then, like, pieces of her face fall away, and she's just, like, a silhouette of a person filled with fire. So that's is not Is this where good. she's getting... And she's... The She's becoming possessed yeah. because the reflection she sees in the mirror is her aunt. Yes. So it like is her and then her aunt and then her and it's very strange. And the so by this point, they kind of, some of the girls suspect something's going on. So they're trying to get out of the house, but they, they find out that they're locked in. They can't get out. Yeah, that's. Just in a little bit. That's, yeah, after the piano bites Melody. Oh, I got, okay, I got ahead of myself. I thought that came after that. Oh. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, it doesn't just bite Melody. This is like one of those scenes that like everyone talks about from this movie. It's like a really famous scene. Well, where first, the piano... it just bites her once. Oh, right. But yes, yes, we will get back to that scene in just a second. But they're all freaked out right now because Mac's gone, Sweet is gone. They're seeing Kung weird things. No yeah, Kung Fu has no pants and uh, logs attacked her. Fantasy has a fantasy about Mr. Togo coming to save them. He rides in on a white horse. Because that's what you need to do when you're in the middle of a crisis. Like, fantasize about a man coming to rescue you. Yeah. 
and they find gorgeous but but she's weird and the filming gets really strange it's very stilted it's kind of like if a strobe light was going off and they say we need to call for help and so gorgeous goes to the phone and when she picks it up we hear voices screaming for help and she just tells him, oh, sorry, the phone's out of order. So I'm going to go for help. Yeah, I'm just going to leave. I'm just going to go. She just goes out into the garden. And all of a sudden the, the doors are locked. Yeah. The doors all lock. The, they close on their own. And Gorgeous is just like out in the garden, just like juggling fairy lights and singing to herself. And Mr. Togo. Going for help must mean two different things. Mr. Togo is stuck in traffic. I don't know why that's in Mr. there. Mr. Togo. But it is. No, Mr. Togo is stuck in traffic and he's just doing like his own little side story. Yeah. Just boop, boop, be dooping all the way up to Auntie's house, I guess. Yeah. Taking a sweet time. So Kung Fu tries to kick the door down, but Prof says that the doors must be automatic. They try to find Auntie so that she can tell them how to open the doors, but they don't know where she is. And so they tell Melody to play the piano to cheer them up because they also find a hand in a jar that's holding Mac's hair ribbon. And Melody doesn't want to play. She says she's scared. But they're like, no, no, just do it. It'll be great. So she starts playing and she like goes into a trance. They hear a noise and they're like, oh, Gorgeous is back. Well, they like hear her singing upstairs, Mm -hmm. which is odd because she was she left. I guess that doesn't matter to them. Again, this feels very dreamscapey because it doesn't really matter if a person left or if they're not there. They, they're still kind of there. And she's in her mom's wedding dress and she like walks out of the room and there's a book there and they pick it up and they take it downstairs. Yeah, it falls out of her train. But while this is going on, the piano bites off Melody's fingers. And then it eats her. Yeah, it literally like... I feel... Go ahead. Swallows her and then like starts chewing her up and there's like pieces of her floating around. Yeah, this is like you said, one of those scenes that people talk about with this movie. Yeah, it's like if you Google how, it comes up in the Google search engine. They're like piano scene. I feel like this is like one of those iconic scenes that... From the movie. Yeah. And it goes on for a very long time. Yeah, I didn't know how long it took a piano to eat someone until this movie. But she doesn't look terribly upset about it. No, it's not like super bloody and it doesn't look very painful. It's just kind of like, I don't know, more distressing than anything else. Yeah. Then when they come back downstairs, there's just her disembodied fingers still playing the piano. Which at that point, this is the point in the film where I went, I I think I audibly said, what the fuck is happening? (laughs) Because it wasn't just the piano eating her. I mean, that was fine. I could get on board with that. But then her fingies left behind still like jaunting, playing a jaunty little tune. That's where I was like, okay, this is getting weird. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get a scene of Mr. Togo eating noodles. Oh, yeah. It's very it's it's very chewy and slurpy and smacky and Yeah. Good noodles. And then we're back to the house where they are reading the book and we find out the rest of Auntie's story. Because we also get the giant head of gorgeous like popping out saying, I'm in my aunt's world now. And they're like, What does that mean? <laughs> even me gorgeous and basically what happened was auntie died but she was still waiting for her love and so to keep herself alive she or the house it's kind of unclear eats it feels like they're binded together yeah eats unmarried girls as you do yes have we come across sweet yet because i feel like we have by this point when she's in the clock and it's filling up with blood yeah yeah clock juice box Mm-hmm. And um, Kung Fu, she starts crying and she says, I'm sorry, sweet. Poor Kung Fu. Yeah. Kung Fu really is the glue that holds this group together because she she is the one, it's like Prof is, is the smart one, but I feel like Kung Fu is the survivalist. Yeah, Kung Fu's the one. If it wasn't for her, the, the house would have gotten them a long time ago because she fights, she fights the whole house. Yeah, she's like, I am taking this whole house on. By myself. Question for you, since we're talking about Kung Fu. They say, I know at least three times, because I noticed it three times, that Kung Fu is manlier than Mr. Togo 
And in the one of the flashbacks about the men going off to war, they say Kung Fu is manlier than those men. Is that some sort of commentary or is it just saying she's tough or are they saying that she's a lesbian or like... What, do you draw anything from that? I was just curious because they said it so many times. Yeah, they definitely draw the line to Kung Fu and masculinity a lot. And this is 1977 Japan, so it's hard to say. I don't get any connotations on whether or not Kung Fu is a queer character. It seems like when they keep talking about how manly she is, I think they're more. it's more commentary on she's resourceful, She's quick thinking, again, survivalist. She's tough. She doesn't back down from a fight. I think things that were more probably and, and definitely in Japan, at the, not even at the time, because I know that there are gender stereotypes everywhere. Those weren't seen as feminine traits. Yeah. Women were supposed to be docile and gentle and submissive and sweet. And Kung Fu was none of those things. And it feels sometimes like a negative or like a make fun of thing I'm not sure if it was meant that way or if I'm just if I'm putting that onto it if I'm projecting my own feelings onto that or if they're just if, if it's more like a matter of fact like oh kung fu could do that kind of thing yeah I wasn't sure if it was more a remark towards her or a remark against Mr. Togo interesting because he is very much made out to be like, like he can't man. do anything. But fantasy like looks at him as this masculine, like manly hero type. Yeah, but he gets his butt stuck in a bucket. He's not resourceful no, at all. So I just, no, he's not. I just thought it was interesting. Like if it had happened once, I probably wouldn't have thought much of it. But it's just a comment they made several times. I would like to believe that this is, more in favor of kung fu they're going you know this is a mark for kung fu they're like she is you know so great and she's so brave and she's tough and she's quick thinking and all of these things i was i would hope that it's more like a like a positive on kung fu yeah well because she I is kung Fu's my favorite character in this whole thing oh yeah by far she has the most personality other than maybe mm -hmm. matt because like sweet is just nice yeah and melody doesn't do much besides like play the piano but yeah i love kung fu and she does she fights the whole house because like everything that's in the house umbrellas tables um yeah because after after the aunt reveals that she's basically a spirit bound to the house and she's going to eat them all these household items start attacking them and kung fu's like i am fighting all of you. She fights the telephone. Although I think it is Prof who figures out the connection with the cat. Yes, it is. Because Prof is reading through the book and they're like, no, it's the cat that's evil. We have to destroy the picture of the cat. So Kung Fu yeah. kicks a hole in the wall and all this blood just like comes gushing out like of the cat it's the picture of the of the cat right it's a yes. picture of blank it's a picture of blank. Picture, and and then the out of the mouth of the picture it starts just spurting blood just and it fills the whole house up with blood it's just blood this is the silly gore core we're here for everywhere um, but yeah but as as hard as she fights kung fu unfortunately is eaten by a possessed light lighting fixture Yes. Which is very sad because you are really rooting for it. She has Final Girl vibes all over the place. And I remember the first time I saw this film, I was livid that she didn't make it. I created the hashtag justice for Kung Fu. Soon to be in our merchandise store. But yeah, but but no, so so she, she lunges into the spine kick right before she's eaten. But her legs, which I guess aren't eaten yet, managed to escape and inflict the damage to the picture of Blanche. Which in turn, I believe, kills Blanche the cat physically. But, like, I didn't realize that that happened. Because it, it's not... This is one of those times animal death didn't bother me because it was not even the point. There were so many other things happening. Blanche's death was very much just kind of somewhere. It's like, oh yeah, that happened. Prof gets yeah. sucked down into the blood and eaten by something. Yeah, because the room is flooding with blood. They're like on a door. It's her and fantasy, right? Yes. They're the only ones left. And she's trying to figure this out. And then this can with teeth grab, comes up and grabs her by the hand and like pulls her down to the blood. And then she just dissolves. And so apparently the blood's acid too. Yeah. <laughs> like she's like an Alka-Seltzer tablet in the blood. She's just... 
You've heard of the ground is lava. This is the blood is acid. The blood is Alka-Seltzer. Or no, you are Alka-Seltzer. And so Fantasy's floating on this door. And then Gorgeous comes down the stairs. And Fantasy's like, help me. And Gorgeous... She's like paddling to her in the blood. (laughs) Gorgeous pulls her up onto the stairs out of the blood swimming pool. And I don't... We don't see what happens to fantasy, do we? No, because they're, they're, it's kind of left. They're kind of left together. The reflection of the ant is in the blood, but it's gorgeous holding fantasy. And it just kind of leaves them there. So I'm assuming they probably were eaten. They were consumed somehow because there's not really a lot of hope for them, especially with gorgeous already being possessed. So it just kind of leaves them there. And it leaves you to fill in the blanks. And then the next scene... Oh, we we totally skipped over the bananas. Mr. Togo is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. He stops at the watermelon stand. And what does he say? He says something about, like, I don't like watermelons. And the guy's like, well, what, what do you like? And he's like, I like bananas. Yeah. And then the guy turns into, like, a skeleton. And... His bones fall onto the ground and Mr. Togo freaks out and jumps in his car and then he turns into like a human Lush. shape made out of bananas. Yeah. And then the next morning, uh, Gorgeous's new mommy, Ryoko, is driving up to surprise the girls because nothing wins the affection of a teenager like surprising her on her vacation when you were uninvited or when you weren't invited. But like, this is how Ryoko is going to win her over. But she stops by the stand and there's Mr. Togo's car and he is bananas. And when I say that, he literally is just a huge pile of bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. N-A-N-A-S. So she drives on to the house and she gets there and there's nobody there but gorgeous. But it's it's a, such a beautiful scene, you know, they're sitting on the mats and the lighting is just gorgeous and the wind is blowing and it's blowing the scarf and... Again, going into that dreamy Ryoko thing. But you know that this isn't going to yeah, end and th- well. Yeah, so they're talking and Gorgeous tells Ryoko that her friends will wake up soon and they will be hungry. Yeah. And Blanche is also there. So Blanche doesn't die. No. So I guess whatever damage Kung Fu Fu did inflict, it wasn't enough. You can't bring down a witch cat. (laughs) No, the bitch is back. No. So, yeah. So Gorgeous tells Ryoko that her friends are going to wake up soon. They'll be hungry. And then she, like, shakes hands with Ryoko. And then she just catches on fire Ryoko does yeah and and just like calmly sitting there just burning just flames flames on the sides of my face that's a Madeline Kahn reference for you and that's house and that's house it's the end the end and it is delightful it is delightful in a way that I cannot explain because I feel like just describing it someone would be like why would I watch that that sounds crazy but there is something about this movie that makes you come back. Yeah. And makes you go, that was fucking fun. Yeah, I don't know. I've probably seen this movie like six times now. And that's a lot for me as an adult. Like when I was a kid, we watched movies over and over and over and over. But now I have so many movies to watch that it's got to be something special to go back to it that many times. Yeah, to come back to one now as an adult takes a little bit more from the film for me. Going, I would rewatch that, or this is another mark of a good film for me is when I when I want to buy it on DVD because mm-hmm. I don't buy DVDs anymore because you can stream everything. But if I go, I want to own this movie. That to me is the mark of a good of a film that I've enjoyed thoroughly. Yeah, and this is one I would definitely have in my collection and it's a short film it's only like an hour and a half yeah i think it's an hour and a half it's 88 it's, minutes that's yeah so like that's what an hour and 20 like 28 minutes so yeah. just under an hour and a half yeah and it's great just moves but i will say it feels a lot longer than an hour and a half not necessarily in a bad way just so much it's just so much yeah so much happens it feels impossible that someone could chalk that much stuff into an hour and a half film there's an article that i'm going to link to in the show notes 
called In Praise of Hausu, the world's most demented haunted house film. Yes, very that. So would you like to bring it down now and tell us about the bombing? Yeah, so there there are a couple subtle references to the atomic bomb thrown throughout this movie. We see mushroom clouds a few times. And what's really sad is the filmmaker, Obayashi, grew up in Hiroshima. Hmm. And was lived there when the U.S. dropped the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and lost all of his childhood friends. Like all of his close friends died. So as you can imagine, this was a huge, huge, formative, impactful event for him. And he says that there was something in this film, too, about the generational divide. Because the generation of the of the aunts, the older generation, were products and children of war, and this newer generation, the generation of the of the students of fantasy and gorgeous, did not grow up in that. They were children of peace that may take for granted the peace they grew up in. And specifically, he was I I, I don't remember if he said this or if it was someone else. I, I but I but it was talking about the scene where Max Head bites fantasy in the butt. It was literally the the older generation biting the new generation in the ass. Because it's like, here are all these kids that are growing up products of peacetime while this older generation experienced traumatic, the traumatic experience of growing up in war. And um, there was a bitterness to that. So it, that's what it kind of alluded to between the aunt and the um, the, the, the girls was here is this woman that was denied her happiness, that lost the love of her life, that was consumed, you know, however you want to look at it, was consumed by her grief and loss and, and that festered and turned and did whatever and created this house that fed on the lifeblood or the life force of these kids that never had to experience that. But the, there are some parallels drawn between Blanche, the cat, and the atomic bomb. Because Blanche is white and fluffy, and the mushroom cloud is white and fluffy. And you notice that Blanche's eyes flash a lot, like in the scene where they take where the picture is taken and it's the atomic bomb goes off after. I think that was in the, the flashback memory. So there's some parallels drawn between those two things. Because okay. Blanche is kind of like the life force that keeps the house going. So it's like the memories of war are, are what are imbuing the aunt's spirit in the house, which keeps her feeding on the girls. If oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, and you can take it to it. You can take this as an experimental haunted house film and leave it at that. But there there can be deeper deeper meaning to things because this is also a man that in his childhood experienced something that all, most of us could never imagine the level of trauma that would have been, um, which I find really interesting, like how drawn he is to creating things that children would make and how he consulted his own child and how much childlike wonderment and whimsy played into this film, given, given that it was kind of a, a horror movie, not kind of a horror movie it was. Um, but I found that really interesting that this horrible event happened in his childhood. And now that was something that, and childhood continued to influence his, his, his work. Yeah. So, so there's that too. And I think that that's kind of beautiful, actually, that he, he was able to use his medium to process that or however you want to think about it. Yeah. And in such an interesting way to not just a like historical drama, but a horror movie. And that's one of the things people have always written off horror movies as just being like the lowest denominator or like, oh, that's just a horror movie. It doesn't mean anything. But so many horror movies have a deep meaning to them. I mean, a lot of them don't, but there are a lot that do. And it's starting to become a much 
more common thing with movies like Get Out and The New Candyman and um, movies like His House. They they look and explore different things that are going on or struggles that people have in a way that is not as conventional as just like a straight up drama. Right. Well, even looking at Netflix's Haunting of Hill House, that literally is exploring grief. Yeah. And like how someone grieves. So I completely agree with that. It's kind of interesting, too, because you you look at uh, people that do comedy or comedians and they say it's been said the best comedians are often people that have experienced extreme sadness or loss or tragedy in their life. There's something traumatic in their past that allows them to process through comedy. And I do equate comedy and horror. There's something so I can't remember what was said. I saw a panel on this a few years ago. At, it was either Austin Film Fest or the TV Festival, but talking about the parallels between horror and comedy. Because you'll find a lot of comedic actors do really well in horror. Yes. Um, but, the, but there are parallels between the two. And I think that there's something interesting there, too, about processing trauma and grief in those two genres specifically. Yeah. I also think it's interesting, too, that we are getting so many more horror films made by women about women's stories or even just stories created by women um, that they're drawn to horror to process things that we experience. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about doing my dissertation on something kind of like that. So it is very interesting. It's funny. That just reminded me because I think, I think about how we, we use our art medium, whether that's writing or filmmaking or theater, whatever the case may be. But we, we do use that to process things that we've gone through. And it reminded me of the Meryl Streep quote from the Golden Globes where she said, take your broken heart and turn it into art. I find that that really fit this, this movie because just thinking about the things that the filmmaker went through, what Obiashi experienced, the heartbreak that he went through, he, that's what he did with, with, his, with his movies and his work. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it would be like to live through Something like that. Yeah. So, so once again, the healing power of art. And cinema, which is an art. Yeah. I'm taking a, um, oh, what's the exact title of it? I'm taking critical approaches to cinema this semester. And one of the things we were talking about was how for a long time people did not consider cinema to be art for different reasons, like because it doesn't have a single author or... Because it doesn't fit these certain classical rules of art that somebody made up. To me, cinema has always been an art. Even bef you know, when I was a kid, when I was before I knew anything about like the difference or like what art was or anything, it was to me because it was something that people were making and acting and there's art direction and stuff like that. So it is an art, but throughout history, a lot of times, like, movies were just destroyed or, like, oh, we don't need this one anymore. Let's just get rid of it because they didn't yeah. have value, but they are an art. Well, I guess it it depends on how what you, what you define art as. And, like, for me, art is all about imagination and then the conception of turning that imagination into something. Like, the creation based on what you, what you think of in your head. So it's like, how could film not be an art? Mm -hmm. So, oh, and I was going to tell you, um, the filmmaker Nobuhiko Obayashi did pass away in April of last year. Oh. He was 82. He passed okay. away from lung cancer. Well, 82 is not, not too short of a life, so hopefully... Nothing to sniff at. Yeah, he had a good one. So what rating would you give this movie? You know, I know that there are probably problems with it as we look deeper into it. I just really enjoyed this one. And I enjoyed it too because even though the time that it was made in, the culture that it was made in, it still gave us some really cool female characters. And I think it's really commendable and really cool that at the time when I don't know how popular women focused films were, that you had a male director or a male, fil a male filmmaker create something based on his daughter's ideas and then to cast it almost completely with women. There were only like three male roles and they were all very, very small bits. I think the most, the biggest role for a man and that was Mr. Togo. But, you know, he was kind of inconsequential to everything. But it's a film that focuses on young women 
It focuses on their friendships, how they work together, how how women can be different too. And I think that that's really, I think that that's really cool that it was made in a time when I don't think people were thinking about that. Yeah. Whether he meant to do that or not, like we have a, a cool film that has very different characters and kind of shows the different facet that women can be because no no character is the same granted they might be stuck in their little stereotype but it is it is kind of cool so and and just for like how fun it is I'm gonna give this one an A yeah it's an A for me um because it's just so unique I when thinking about recommendations I'm like there's nothing else like it you can't recommend anything you know other haunted house movies are not like this other horror comedies are not like this there's just there's nothing else like it right it stands alone yeah the house stands alone the house stands alone (laughs) yeah so do you have anything else you want to talk about before we go into recommendations i feel really good about this one i think we've had a really complete conversation okay cool so what is your recommendation you know i kind of forgot that we did this (laughs) okay i'll do mine first well, I have, I, I, one just came to my head, but you go first. Okay, so I have two depending on what way you want to go with it. Thinking about kind of the creepy childlike aspect, I, my first recommendation is one that you could totally watch with your kids if you wanted, and it's Double Double Toil and Trouble from 1993, starring yeah. Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen, and the amazing Cloris Leachman. Queen. Yes. So this movie is great. It's about this set of twins who finds out that their cruel Aunt Agatha is actually a witch and she trapped her sister Sophia in a mirror and they have to help free her. There's an adventure and they sneak off on their own and they meet up with a grave digger and a clown and a homeless person who's a Shakespearean actor, maybe? But it's just super fun. And this actually creeped me out a lot when I was a kid. And I rewatched it last year. And it still has some kind of like, it just feels creepy. But it is a kid's movie. Yeah. And it's it's fun. And you could totally watch it with your kids. And then nice. my other one is a more serious horror movie called Burnt Offerings from 1973 and it's about a family that moves into a summer home where each member is plagued by unusual experience and personality changes and this is very much like this was one of the first times I think it was the house is evil type of movie um and so I only watched this one for the first time last year maybe this year but I really enjoyed it and it's got yeah a very like ominous feeling and the house is evil but it's not it's not silly it might be a little cheesy but it's not meant to be it's meant to be you know more of a serious one and it stars Karen Black and Oliver Reed yeah that one was really fun oh Betty Davis is also in this one she plays the old nice. aunt. But yeah, so Double Double Google. Toil and Trouble is family friendly. Burnt Offerings probably is too because I don't think it's very dark horror, but it might be a little boring for kids. Nice. What do you have? Okay, so I have two as well. And I'm going kind of all over the place, but house is all over the place. So I'm just going to take my own creative license. But we are in the spooky season. So I have... My first one was something that I saw for the first time last year, but it actually came out in 1993. And it's something you can absolutely watch with your kids. It is called The Halloween Tree, and it's based on a book by Ray Bradbury. Um, I tried to find things made by women, but I'm just going to go with this because it was just really, really fun. Um, So it's four children learn the origins of Halloween customs while trying to save the life of their friend. And this is all happening on Halloween. It's like part like kid kid movie, there's adventure, there's education. I found it to be surprisingly progressive for the time it was made in. Um, yeah, and Leonard Nimoy voices this really creepy character named Mr. Moundshroud that like takes the kids around. It's an animated movie. Yes, it is animated. Again, I had never seen it. And uh, we did a Halloween movie challenge last year where we watched a Halloween movie every day leading up to Halloween in October. 
And this was one that we found and myself, my husband and my roommate all loved it. And we're actually planning on watching it again this year. I think we're going to buy it. I still haven't seen that one. I really want to. It's a good one. I really enjoyed it. And it's only an hour and nine minutes. So if you don't like it, it's not going to take up your whole day. And then uh, the next one that I came up with, let me pull up the info. And the thing is, is I think I recommended this one before, but talking about the house taking on a life of its own, The Haunting of Hill House on Netflix. If you haven't seen the series, you need to watch it. It will scare the pants off you. It just will. And then you'll get to the end. It'll feel less scary, but it'll hit you in your feels real hard. So you might not feel as scared by it by the end, but you're definitely going to have feelings. And that is uh, directed and created by Mike Flanagan. And I believe his, let's see. Nope. It's, it's directed and created by Mike Flanagan. So again, Tried to find some. Tried to find some women creative stuff. These were just the first things off the top of my head. But there's the so many is, amazing female characters in Hill yeah. House, and it's it's my favorite thing that I've seen of Mike Flanagan. And he's done a lot of really good stuff. Uh, Midnight Mass does not hold a candle to this one, though, in my opinion. Midnight Mass is creepy, but um, it's just this one is the best that he's done. And again, it has haunted house vibes. There's a group of people, they're dealing with things, and and yeah, the house comes alive and makes people go through some stuff. <laughs> go through some, some things. things. But yeah, so those are my two recommendations. Um, you can watch Halloween Tree on Tubi, or you can rent it on um, Amazon, or I think YouTube, or anywhere like that. I think it's available for rent most places. Go to justwatch.com and you can find it. Just type in Halloween Tree and it should tell you where you can find it for free or where you can rent it. And then Haunting of Hill House is available on Netflix. So if you have a Netflix account or know someone with a Netflix account, you can get that for free. And I just want to, I think I said the wrong year for Burnt Offerings. The novel was released in 1973 and the movie was released in 1976. Got it. Wow, that was a quick turnaround. Well, nice. So thank you guys for joining us for this very... Welcome back. Yeah, welcome back um, for this very spooky time of the year. And we look forward to being back with y'all on a more regular basis now. But thanks for sticking with us and um, happy October, everyone. Happy Halloween. Okay, say bye. All right, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Fatal Femmes. Like us on Facebook at Fatal Femmes and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Fatal underscore Femmes. Have a question or comment for the show? Shoot us an email at fatalfemmespodcast at gmail.com. Episodes are now available on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or whatever podcatcher you use. Don't forget to leave us a rating while you're there. If you like what you've heard, check out our Patreon page. We have different sponsorship levels with perks that will allow us to make more content and better quality episodes. We hope you enjoyed this episode, because if you didn't, the consequences could be fatal. Thanks for listening.